So today, as loyal listeners know, I review some notes that didn't make it into last week's episode on why initialized capital invested in Coinbase, Instacart, and Rippling, and a few other mistakes Gary Tam made in his founder journey. If you want to learn more about initialized capital, I suggest starting there because today I'm going to talk about five questions I'd ask founders if I were a partner at initialized capital. So it's a little helpful to understand the companies they invested in and why first. While I don't know whether the initialized capital partners actually ask these questions, I'm asking these questions based off many direct quotes from current and former partners about what they look for in founders and and questions they ask founders when determining whether to invest in a company. So I can extrapolate some reasonable questions. So founders, as always, try to play along at home, listen to these questions, think how they'd relate to your startup, try to answer them if you can. If you can't, it's probably worth taking some time to hone your startup or your pitch around being able to answer these questions. And investors, similarly, play along, see what answers you'd look for in these questions, see if these are questions you'd want to pick up and ask yourselves if you'd want to iterate some of your current questions based off of this. But let's jump in. So the first question I'd ask if I were a partner at Initialized Capital and the canonical question, it seems, that the Initialized Partners would ask is, what have you built? So for those who listened to the previous episode, one thing that rang true across all the investments we discussed in Initialized Capital's portfolio is they were founded by builders. If And by builders, I mean you know engineers, software engineers, hardware engineers, people who can actually build stuff, <laughs> build the product, build the software, whatever it is. And if you go to the Initialized website, I bet you'll quickly see some reference on their website about how they only back builders and love to back builders. So we touched on this in last week's episode regarding how Initialized was very interested in Brian Armstrong and Apoorva Mehta early on, the founder of Coinbase and Instacart, because they built the MVPs of the product themselves, actually by themselves. They didn't have any help initially. They just built it themselves. They assumed people would be interested in you know what they had to offer, but instead of doing market research or pulling in as much data about consumer behavior as they could to use to pitch investors or to be able to have data to build a fancy pitch deck to get money for investors to to de-risk their opportunity cost of building the product first without you know any money. They just decided to build the product to confirm whether users would want to use it or not. And current initialized president, Jen Wolf, talks about how much initialized just loves to engage with these founders, founders who build the product to test the thesis rather than do research to test the thesis. She once said, quote, there are people who like to build things to solve problems. They don't want to just talk about it or research it. They're very action oriented. And they say, I've identified this problem and this is how I'm going to start to figure out how to get product market fit or how to solve the problem. I'm going to create the product and put it out there. And that's going to be my main way of trying to understand whether this is something people want or need. So Initialized loves this trait in a founder so much because builder owners or builder founders of a startup can move so fast. You know, if they have an idea for a new feature 
or want to reduce friction in a process after talking to a user, they can just sit down for a few hours and do it. You know, they don't have to coordinate with a team to get it done or design the, the workflow to give to some engineer or developer to get it done. You know, they can just do it themselves. And as we've discussed many times in this podcast series, startups need to move fast because it's one of the only advantages they have over large incumbents. You know, the faster you move, the better. And being able to go from idea to product immediately helps you move fast. And the initialized team believes in this concept so much that they really don't care about credentialism. They often say they don't even look at founders' resumes at times because what's more important to them is seeing what the founder has built. And founding partner Gary Tan discussed this in more detail as he said, quote, we like to see what you built. That's really powerful. I don't want to see your resume. I don't really care where you came from. I want to see what you built and I want to see what your customers say. A lot of the resume thinking, the check the box thinking actually doesn't work, end quote. So this is interesting because most pre-seed or seed investors care most about credentialism, which when investing at purely the idea stage is really the only thing you can base your investment on. So it's understandable. Initialized, invested in Rippling at the idea stage because they knew Parker Conrad's history as an exceptional builder and executive. But Initialize is unique in the fact that when there's an MVP on the table to review, that's valued a lot higher than the founder's experience and formal credentials. Now, the Initialize team would much rather support Apoorva Mehta, the founder of Instacart, who worked at Amazon for two years as just a regular software engineer, which is notable, but he was also launching just unsuccessful startup after unsuccessful startup which is kind of a red flag considering he said he launched somewhere around 20 companies in two years before starting Instacart. So, you know, what's to say the 21st will work? And what's to say this inexperienced 26 or 27-year-old will be the one to make something as hard as grocery delivery finally work after many failed attempts by others? So many investors would pass on this resume and work history and credentials, but initialized love the product of Purva built and could see that he was willing to grind on this project himself to make Instacart as successful as it could possibly be early on. And so luckily, Initialize loved his willingness to build a janky and extremely unprofitable MVP. As I touched on in the last episode, they were burning $30 on a $12 revenue generating transaction. So horrible economics. But they just loved Apoorva's grit and willing to build that they invested at the earliest possible stage, which, as we know, delivered them a massive return, as we talked about in the last episode. So if I were a partner at Initialize, I would love to see an MVP. You know, if you come to the meeting with just an idea, but a history of building great products, you know, then we can talk. But if you come to the meeting with an actual demo, then I will be a lot more excited for our meeting. And your chances of raising capital are much higher. So while this is especially true for initialized founders, in general, I just suggest trying to have an MVP anytime you pitch an investor. Trying to raise money before building the MVP to de-risk your personal financial outcomes or opportunity cost outcomes, that will just cause you to spend more time fundraising and less time actually growing. And 
reaching the next milestone in your company. So it's better to take the time to build out an MVP and then raise money because then the fundraising process should be a lot quicker and you should be able to get in front of a lot more notable and better connected investors that will send great signals for your company for future investors and for employees, you know, if you're able to land a check to them. So in general, I just suggest trying to build an MVP before you raise. You'll probably have a lot more success or get some exceptional feedback about your product from tenured investors who have seen other products like yours before, most likely. So again, question one, what have you built? Question two, a natural transition is, okay, so you built it. Well, why has this not been built yet? So this is a really important question every investor should ask a founder during a pitch. Now, some investors frame this question as, you know, why now? A traditional classic question, which is similar, but I'm asking why has this not been built yet as a slightly different spin on the why now question that better relates to initialized capital's thesis. So a strong answer to you know why this product hasn't been built yet would be that it's just a boring industry to most people. Now, the, the canonical example for initialized portfolio is Flexport. I mean, hearing founder and CEO Ryan Peterson talk about the shipping process and how many regulators and stakeholders there are tracking every little detail of every package in such a slow and archaic industry just gives me a headache. I mean, it sounds like such a challenging, frustrating, and boring industry to operate in, which is, you know, why we've never had a company bringing effective software to shipping as Flexport has done. It's not that exciting. People want to build the next Airbnb or Uber. You know, that's a lot more interesting. <laughs> but as an investor, you know, going after the the interesting problems that have already been solved, the Airbnbs and the Ubers, that doesn't really make me any money because those industries are already so saturated. You know, Uber, Airbnb, Instagram, WhatsApp, LinkedIn, and, and so on are exceptional products and juggernauts with millions or billions of users. So how are you going to be so much better than them with a minuscule fraction of the resources they have to take on their market share? That's basically impossible. And so that's why Initialize loves to back founders that make boring industries exciting. There's opportunity there. It's not saturated. You could be the company that goes in there and irrigates this terrible industry with software and make it something exciting. Current initialized partner, Aldo Lu, has an interesting quote on this. She once said, quote, if you can take a boring industry and make it exciting, that shows a lot of skill. And that skill can translate into more fundraising, into recruiting, into business development partnerships. And it actually is a talent. End quote. So Ryan Peterson made Flexport cool, <laughs> or you know, said another way, and an even crazier way, Ryan Peterson made freight shipping cool. And you know, don't get me wrong, I think ports look really cool. I still have like a childlike awe when I see the massive scale of the operations. But then my head begins to spin just thinking about how this massive operation can possibly be efficient. You know, it must be a brutal industry to operate in. But Flexport seems like a great place to work because they're taking this boring and disorganized industry and bringing software to it to solve interesting and really challenging and really important problems, which is pretty exciting. 
So if I'm a partner at Initialized and I see a founder come in and talk about tackling a major problem in a super boring industry that no one wants to touch, then I'm feeling very bullish. Now, if you can muster up the strength to go against ocean freight or workers' compensation or HR onboarding processes and showcase your knowledge in the industry and passion for disrupting it, then I'm likely very inclined to invest. And so this goes into the second answer of this question I'd sort of be looking for about, you know, why has no one built in this industry yet, which is the founder that's pitching me is showcasing some anti-memetic thinking. And we touched on this in the last episode as a big reason why Gary Tan was so bullish on Coinbase before anyone else. In the last essay, I wrote, quote, well, Brian Armstrong, founder and CEO of Coinbase, believed that this coin with less than a $150 million market cap, Bitcoin, could eventually become a new gold standard and the foundation of a global currency without government intervention. That's quite the anti-memetic thinking there. The US dollar, the euro, the Chinese yuan have trillions of dollars in circulation, backed by decades of staying power, government and militaristic support, and global user adoption. Now, how is this digital coin, known by less than a million people in the world, supposed to uproot that? So that's certainly an extremely difficult question, but one Gary was willing to invest in Brian to solve. And since VC is such a power law industry, power law is in many losers, few massive winners, you have to be truly exceptional to be a multi-billion dollar company, to be one of those massive winners. And like I just said, no one wants to back another Airbnb or Instagram. It's been done. We need something new. Or if you think about it today, no one wants to back another Coinbase because it's already been done. We don't need another cryptocurrency exchange. But in 2012, there was barely anything like Coinbase and nothing nearly as user-friendly as what Brian Armstrong was able to build. And so funding a company trying to be the next Coinbase is a lot less appealing than funding a company taking on a boring industry that no one else is building it. I mean, founder of Initialize, Gary Tan, said, quote, we often ask ourselves, what do we believe that no one else believes? We ask the founders that too. There isn't one of those things embedded in an anti-memetic aspect to the business. Often we don't want to fund it, end quote. So I'm looking for anti-memetic founders. I'm looking for original thinkers. I'm looking for weird people who get excited at the opportunity of disrupting a boring industry and working within a boring industry, dealing with all the headaches for 10 or 15 years to turn into something incredible. Now, if you if you go to a boarding industry where no one else is building in, that means the playing field is wide open. And I can back a strong player to take that industry by storm and beat the incumbents and beat the competition to the finish line and before they even start. So antimimesis essentially gives a startup first mover advantages, which in industries with network effects, network effects is in the product gets better as more people use it. Instagram is more interesting because there are more people posting pictures and videos on it. So industries with high network effects and high switching costs. Switching costs is in you invest so much personally into the product or into the service that it costs so much money to switch. You know, classic example is using AWS as you know your cloud computing software. It would just 
cost so much and take so long to switch over to Microsoft Azure if you wanted to. So that's high switching costs. So a startup with first mover advantages can beat competition to achieve network effects and achieve high switching costs, which is ultra valuable and can build you a major moat. So founders, try not to build another social network or another dating app. Try to build something exceptionally unique and ideally a boring industry and make that industry exciting to show that you can attract exceptional builders to work on that product with you. If you can do that, I guarantee you'll at least land a meeting with initialized capital if you take that route. And I'd assume you'd land a meeting with a lot of other investors as well. So again, question number two was why has this not been built yet? Question number three is what is your experience in this industry? So as I touched on in the last section, I'd love to back an anti-memetic founder going after a boring industry. But that founder has to display expertise in that industry since it's likely going to be really hard to disrupt. And so when I talk about experience, you know, when I say what's your experience in this industry, it's kind of a trick question. From the initialized capital lens, I'm more interested in founders who maybe didn't work their way up Salesforce and now believe they can build a better CRM. Now, I'm looking for the Brian Armstrongs who took a hobby interest in Bitcoin and turned it into an obsession. You know, in last week's episode, I said something along the lines of what's interesting is that Brian Armstrong was by no means a Vitalik Buterin type who studied crypto for many years before starting a vital piece to the ecosystem you know, by creating Ethereum. Brian Armstrong actually worked in the anti-fraud department at Airbnb before it was even a $1 billion company. He was just curious enough to explore this idea further, and he used his engineering abilities in security to build an exceptional product, the MVP of which he just built in a few weeks. And so interestingly for initialized capital, seeing a founder create founder market fit is more exciting than someone than backing someone with natural founder market fit. So current initialized managing partner, Brett Gibson, describes why this is such a bullish signal as he said, quote, there's always this concept of founder market fit. And in some technical domain, sure, you need to have worked a long time in rockets to create new rocket engines. But I think there's a wide swath of opportunity for very smart technical people to will themselves into founder market fit to learn everything about a market. We get founders that are talented and second time founders, and they just pick something entirely different and they go out and make sure they know everything about it. And they just decide to become experts and decide to have a fit for a given market. So it's remarkable that Brian Armstrong went from an enthusiast in crypto to a full on creator of a platform that services the seed in just a few weeks. You know, he built again, he built the MVP in just a few weeks. So if he could do that, think about what he could do with a few years of effort on this project, if that's what he's able to do in a few weeks. It's a remarkable signal that showed Brian Armstrong had strong potential as a founder to build something world-changing. So why did Brian Armstrong drop everything at Airbnb to work tirelessly at creating an easy-to-use Bitcoin transaction service? Because he was obsessed with the problem. And another quote from current managing partner, Brett Gibson, he talks about how obsession is just such a strong signal. As he once said, quote, the word grit comes up a lot. And I think that's important. But when I was thinking about what's happening in the early stages, 
the thing that I was looking for as a proxy for whether or not an entrepreneur is actually going to do something is a little bit of obsession. You find that founders who are a little encyclopedic about the domain they're working in have done a lot of work. If you can't stump them in the pitch and they've learned everything that's going on and they're really obsessed with their idea and they're thinking deeply about the market opportunity and how they've talked to all the customers they can, that's a really good signal, end quote. So again, I know I talk about Brian Armstrong so much, but again, he's just such a great example of an outsider coming in and studying hard to be an expert in the industry. He created Founder Market Fit, and that's really interesting. But on the other side of the coin, Ryan Peterson was obsessed with ocean freight for a long time. He spent several years in China studying it from, you know, obviously the largest exporter in the world. It's a pretty good place to study it. And if he was willing to go to China for a few years to do it, you know, that's that's pretty obsessed. And you can tell because Ryan Peterson knows everything about the industry and his future customers. You know, he built connections with a thorough Rolodex before even starting Flexport based on his experience in China. I mean, what an excellent founder to back. You know, I, I suggest you watch a video listening to him talk about the early days of Flexport because he just rambles on fact after fact that are just so niche and I suspect very people in the world know about. And I'm sure the initialized team just listened to him talk in awe because it's so remarkable how much he knows. And it's because he's truly obsessed. So there are kind of two answers to look for when asking, you know, what the founder's experience in this industry is. You know, I could find the Brian Armstrong type who is an outsider, but so deeply interested in learning that his learning curve you know, looks exponential and one you expect to continue in time to earn him the title of an expert. You know, if you keep going up that exponential curve at this rate, after at a rate of building the MVP in a few weeks, Think about what he can do with the product in a few years. That's an exponential growth curve. Or on the other side, you can back the Ryan Peterson archetype that maybe has a more linear curve, but you're meeting him when he's already near the top of the curve. You know, He's already done years and years of research and work on this problem that now that he's ready to start the company, he's already at that expert level at the top of that curve. So either founder is very backable, but... Any founder in between those two extremes is a lot less appealing because they likely aren't very obsessed. So founders take either route, but take a route. <laughs> and investors, you know, don't back a founder you don't feel is absolutely all in on this problem. You know, whether they have a natural founder market fit, like a Ryan Peterson, or are rapidly creating it as an outsider, like a Brian Armstrong. And so again, question number three was, what is your experience in this industry? Question number four is, how do you know this is something your customers want? So while most of this essay I've been talking about, you know, build the product, build the product, there's one slight caveat, and that's to build something people want. Even companies we've discussed like Coinbase and Instacart knew their product would be something people want. You know, Brian Armstrong knew people were interested in buying Bitcoin, but hated the current transaction services, and Apurva Meta hated going to the grocery store and could kind of obviously assume that other people did too. And so these were actually pretty easy problems to recognize a need for. 
I mean, you know, the Instacart problem appealed to billions of people and the Coinbase problem was a little more niche. But, you know, nonetheless, these founders knew these were problems, at least some sort of users wanted solutions to, whether it was billions or millions at the time, there were users that wanted solutions to these problems and enough to build a business out of. So sometimes identifying problems requires a little more user research, though. So while these were obvious, sometimes identifying problems requires a little more user research to ensure that this is something people want, especially if you're going after an industry that hasn't really been saturated yet with companies. So current initialized partner, Parul Singh, has a great quote on doing user research before creating an exceptional product. She once said, quote, I think when we started out building things, it used to be just about functionality. You know, how easy is it to do this? Like usability. How easy is it to go through all these workflows? And the way that that's helped me as an investor is that I also believe if you're not building for a really strong need, then it's pretty impossible to build a high growth company. And so I think sometimes my user research skills help me a lot because then you can try to understand how bad is this pain point that people are solving for, end quote. So we talked about building something people want, which is pretty straightforward. Now, but I think a lesser known aspect of this, as Perul Singh talked about just now, is designing the product in a way that most appeals to the user. You know, sure, Parker Conrad, founder and CEO of Rippling, who we talked about last week, knows HR teams hate using so many different platforms to onboard new employees. Rippling should create a single platform for them to onboard employees one time and give them access to the apps they need. You know, that's an obvious problem to solve. But to be a great product that users love, you have to build it in a way that appeals to them. You have to design the platform and the workflows, the design, the functionality, so that HR professionals using the platform can easily learn how to navigate it and all of their most important needs are most prevalent. And so Parker could have guessed what HR professionals would have wanted based on his experience, but by deeply engaging with customers, he not only knows you know, to build an HR platform, he knows how to build an HR platform that his users will love. So you can't just do market research and look at data to see if this is something customers want. And you can't even really build a product that solves the need based on your own opinion. Now, if you do either, you probably won't have the true perspectives of an individual facing this problem, as in your customer. And once you extract that information by talking to enough customers with you know, a large enough sample size, you can determine how to build the product to serve the problem. And so once you talk to so many customers and extract so much information, you'll have a large enough sample size to determine how to build the product to solve the problem for the user in the easiest and most efficient way for them. So again, I'd be making sure that they've talked to their users so that they know how to build their product, not just that they're solving the problem, but that they are solving it in an effective way that appeals to users or else copycats will come in and deliver a better product for that problem. And so, you know, the second thing I kind of be looking for in this answer is just if I can feel some type of emphasis on the founder's relationship with their customers, you know, not only have the founders talk to them, but how often do they talk to them? You know, how do they handle their questions or issues with the product? And you know, what additional features are the customers looking for? I think it's vital that 
you talk to your customers early on to figure out what they want, but it becomes increasingly more vital that you continue to engage with them to ensure that they're always getting the best user experience possible and no one's leaving your service for a competitor service that's begun to deliver a better experience. So this is kind of a stretch to bring this quote into this portion of the episode, but I just absolutely love these rules for fanatical customer support that Gary Tan has written about. And so if I can see a founder practicing these actions or can give me some type of proof of them doing these actions after I talk to customers using the product when I'm considering the investment or going through references, if I can see that they're practicing these six customer support principles, then I'm going to be very bullish about this company, about this founder. And so the six points that Gary Tan has talked about before are number one, answer every email within 10 minutes. Number two, feel the pain your users are experiencing. Number three, if one person emails you, there are 10 or a hundred other people who have failed there. Number four, be thankful. They are doing you a favor. Number five, fix the problem ASAP. And number six, be as authentic as possible. Quote, I'm the CEO. How can I help? End quote. So first of all, before I go on, listen to that again, if you're a founder. That is so important. And I especially want to emphasize number three and four. Again, number three being, if one person emails you, there are several other people who have failed there. And number four, as being thankful because the customers are doing you a favor by reaching out to you and telling you their problem. I mean, customer feedback is so important to a product. So if one customer is frustrated enough to actually take time out of their day to email you about it, you can expect many customers are feeling that pain point as well. They just aren't telling you about it. And so you should be ultra grateful that that customer is taking the time to let you know about an issue of your product. You, know, you shouldn't be annoyed that you have to answer a customer service request. You should be ecstatic because you know how you can make your product better. So you should, I mean, frankly, tell them that. Tell them you're the CEO. Tell them you're sorry that they had this issue and tell them how grateful you are that they told you because now you can fix it and the process can be so much better for thousands of users who didn't take the time to tell you the problem. So thank them. I'm sure that customer will be pleasantly surprised and be a long-term user of your product, have some type of brand loyalty. So again, back to this question. If So if the founder can prove to me that they align with these principles and are constantly iterating and focusing on customer support, I'd be ecstatic. You know, it shows you really care about the problem you're solving. Because if you engage closely with the customers, it shows that you really do care about the problem you're solving. You know, because again, that's why you should start a business. You're starting a business to solve a problem. If you're more of a mercenary and you're starting a business to get rich, you'll probably be annoyed that you have to engage with customers and solve their problems. So that's a red flag. But if you're like, are building this business because you want the world to be different and you want these users to have a better experience because they deserve it, then you should be so happy to engage with them in a customer support fashion because it gives you answers, direct answers on how to solve their problems rather than just assuming what they want. 
And so, and also it's just nice to have principles like these, like written out on paper, but you know, obviously the founder and the company and the team has to prove it. So take Rippling as an example, Parker Conrad, again, the CEO is, and always has been obsessed with customer service. They're so obsessed that they publish all of their customer support data on their website about, you know, how fast they respond to issues and how well they resolve the customer's problem. All the internal data they track is on the company's website for you to look at, which is awesome, first of all. And second of all, what I love even more, and if you haven't looked at the Substack, I suggest you click the link in the show notes to the Substack to see the picture of this because the Rippling team cares so much about customer support that they even put up a billboard that highlights their response time to customer service inquiries. The billboard is simply support response time, you know, colon, zero minutes, 36 seconds, update as of February, 2022. So I just love that. You know, I want that type of founder that just cares so much about their customers, knows exactly what his or her customers want. You know, not when, not just when building the product initially, but throughout the entire life of the customer. I want someone to be I want their title to be CEO slash head of customer support because that's really what they should be doing. It's just engaging with the customers as much as they possibly can. So again, question four, I'd ask, how do you know this is something your customers want? And I'd look for because they've just fanatically talked to their customers. They respect their customers' insights and will continue to throughout the entire life of the company. And so last question today, question number five, why should I leave my job? to join your company. So if you go to the initialized website, you'll see that this is a question everywhere. I mean, they love to ask this question. Normally I interpret, you know, quotes from current and former partners about questions these teams would ask, but the initialized team is fully just like, we love to ask this question. Why should I leave my job to join your company? And I think it's an excellent question that, you know, many investment, all investment teams should ask themselves and ask each other when debating an investment. You know, it's personally how I think about whether I want to start a new project. I, you know, as a, I'd assume most VCs are, am very curious. So many things sound interesting to me. And, you know, I always think, oh, how fun it would be to do a deep dive into that compulsion. But typically, once I start to dive in, I find it is really hard. And there's a lot I don't know. And the day to day actually isn't as fun as the end goal sounds. And I don't really know enough to produce a good outcome. So maybe it's not worth my time to jump into that experiment or that compulsion, whatever you want to call it. But there are some companies for me, some ideas for me, like Cruise, for example, an initialized portfolio company that sound really interesting and would have been a fascinating problem to work on, much as I assume Gary Tan must have felt when he led that investment. Cruise, for those who don't know, is essentially an autonomous driving taxi company, as crazy as that sounds. And so this feeling of just getting excited about the company you're investing in and, and wanting to join them and work with them. You know, Gary Tan has this quote where he once said, quote, it's like, hey, this person made a thing that's awesome. If they can make this, they're going to attract other people who can recognize this is awesome. Through the like tracks alike principle, this is just going to be a magnet for all the other smartest people who know how to build. I think that's underrated, actually. People don't realize this, but people who are really good at building 
really like working with other people who know how to build. That's the real currency of being able to build software in Silicon Valley is actually where the builders go and where they want to work. That tends to be the thing of the future. We still use that as one of the primary things we look for when we sit across the founder is if I weren't doing what I'm doing now, if I were going to look for a job, would this be one of the top 10 places I would want to go work at? Can you convince me? Then we all look at each other with all these different backgrounds. And it's like, would all of us go work there? The cool thing is if you fund a startup, that is a bunch of people who, if you did go work there, you'd be a pretty good startup, end quote. So since Gary thinks creating autonomous taxis is autonomous driving taxis is interesting, I'd assume many other exceptional engineers like Gary would think the same. And you could just build a massive company off of a spectacular initial team that's essentially too exceptional to fail. You know, so by framing your investment decision on this principle, you actually de-risk your investment quite a lot because if you're feeling convinced by the founder to go join the ride, you know, they're just so charismatic, determined, and intelligent, you could assume other people will see it too. It's a pretty straightforward assumption that the better the team, the better the potential outcome for a startup is. That's why so many early stage investors emphasize the founder and the team most because many problems, if plausible, you know, can be solved. Many problems the founders are going after, they could probably figure out how to solve those problems. And that's why so many early stage investors emphasize the founder and the team because you know, going after a general problem probably can be solved. You know, Someone's going to solve autonomous driving taxis. Someone's going to do that. It's too interesting not for someone to go after. But what matters is that whether these people are the ones to do it. So if you believe these are the people to do it, this is the team that can solve this problem, then likely other you know, potential employees or builders looking for a new role will likely feel the same way you do you know, if you're a reputable builder yourself, you know, if you have some credibility with your opinion. And so as we've touched on before in this podcast, storytelling is just such a vital skill for a founder because it's the best way to attract exceptional employees. Now, if you can create that aura around autonomous vehicles, which probably isn't that hard, or ocean freight, which is probably much harder, then you have visionary storytelling abilities. And initialized president, Jen Wolf mentioned the importance of this when she once said, quote, I look a lot for how they tell the story of their company. What's both their long-term vision and marrying that with what are the first steps they've taken today. We want them to build not just a great product, but also a great company. We also like to say, would I quit my job to work for this founder? Can they sell that vision to other people and hire a really great team who's just as passionate as they are about what they're doing and have that North Star while also being able to build and get it done and change the world with what they're trying to build? Can they convey that vision through storytelling to us and to people they need to bring in, their customers, their employees, their teammates? That's how you kind of make a really great company, end quote. I think it's interesting when you think about companies now. Take Stripe, for example. It's a payment processing company. (laughs) That's not that interesting when you frame it that way. But the Collison brothers, Patrick and John Collison, the founders of Stripe, created the lore of working at Stripe because... They had the vision to, quote, as they say, increase the GDP of the internet. 
now that's a cool company. <laughs> They're not building a payment processing company. They're building a company that's increasing the GDP of the internet. That's cool. People want to work for that. And it's it's this is like in the A16 five questions episode that I did two weeks ago, where I talked about A16Z partner Martin Casado's emphasis on nailing the mission early on. This is another reason why to nail the mission early on, because that visionary mission statement will be vital in framing your company in the eyes of potential employees, or you'll just be classified as just another payments company. <laughs> so when I ask this question, I want the founder to be able to sell an incredible vision of the future that the company is creating. And I want the founder to be enthusiastic about the challenging problems you know, we could solve together. And so I don't really know because again, I've never been formally pitched by a startup, but I'd assume that if I just heard an incredible, you know, one, one sentence mission statement, that'd be enough to sell me. Stripe is a great example, increasing the GDP of the internet. I'd be sold on that, but perhaps the company Anderol is even a better mission statement. Again, on the Substack, you can see this picture, but this was actually their second slide in their initial pitch deck when raising their Series A round with Founders Fund. And so before I read it, I should say Anderol is a defense tech company, you know, building technology for the military, cheaper and smarter and ideally without the need of humans to go to war anymore. Or it can be fought by drones and machines. It's kind of what they're working towards. And so Anderol in their pitch deck said, Anderol will save Western civilization by saving taxpayers hundreds of billions of dollars a year as we make tens of billions of dollars a year. I just love that. That is perfect. That is so good. So I guarantee you that this slide not only sold investors on investing in Anderol, but also enticed thousands of top engineers to apply for a role in this company. I mean, what a great way to frame a mission, saving taxpayers hundreds of billions of dollars. So doing something great for the world, for your country, but also making tens of billions of dollars a year while you do it. So you're getting rich for it. Great. Best of both worlds. So founders, when you're pitching a VC, act like you're also pitching an employee you really want on your team. Sell them the vision, convey why you want them, make them feel wanted. Talk about all the awesome problems that will be solved and just cap it off with an awesome mission statement that gives butterflies to anyone who reads it. So again, question number five was, why should I leave my job to join your company? And so those are the five questions I'd ask founders if I were a partner at Initialized Capital based on what I've read from current and former partners. I hope you enjoyed this thought exercise. I hope you had some type of light bulb moment that gave you an idea of to tweak your mission statement a little bit or how you frame your pitch a little bit or you know whether this industry is something you really want to go into, whether it's worth it. And investors, you know, I hope that pitch deck that you got sent from a ocean freight like company isn't so boring anymore. I hope, you know, you can see how it can be interesting and see how it can take over the world in the future. So I hope you enjoyed this episode. As always, you can find the written version of this episode on Substack. As I mentioned before, the link will be in the show notes. Additionally, all my notes are at allthingsvc.blog. If you want to read more quotes from current and former partners on what they look for in founders, why they invest in the companies they do, not just for initialized, but all the companies I've looked at, Sequoia, Benchmark, Kleiner Perkins, A16Z. I, mean, I might have up to a thousand quotes on there by now. So 
really check it out if you're interested. I also post short snippets of this podcast episode on my YouTube page. You can check that out in the show notes. And for just random, interesting thoughts or fun thoughts or stupid thoughts that pop in my head, you can follow me on Twitter or X at Justin underscore prior underscore. Again, that'll be in the show notes um, if you want to follow me on there as well. So stay tuned for next week as we do another deep dive into another exceptional VC firm with many lessons to learn. Make sure you follow and subscribe to this page so you don't miss it. We'll see you Wednesday. Thank you for listening and have a great rest of your day.